0: Hello Trippers and a Happy New Year, we are back! I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan and your host for the first trip to the movies of 2024. I hope your start to the year has been a good one and thank you for joining me for this episode. I'm currently in our podcast studio back a mile beneath the streets of London and in a moment my guests this week the wonderful filmmaking duo of Tom Berkeley and Ross White will be taking us on their perfect trip to the movies. Thank you for downloading this episode. It is brought to you by Odeon because if you are going to watch a movie it has to be at an Odeon Lux. For me, there's no better place to experience the mesmerising magic of the big screen. And when I say big... I mean crystal clear, four times sharper, larger than life, I sense big. A place where you can recline in luxury while sipping on your favourite tipple as you immerse yourself in the all-consuming power of the story, enriched by epic Dolby Atmos that'll make your spine tingle and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Now that is how to experience a movie, and there's no better feeling. You can book your Odeon Luxe experience at Odeon.co.uk or via the My Odeon app. Odeon say we make movies better, and they are not wrong. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in Glorious technical, do head over to our YouTube channel where the video goes up a few days after the pod. And for all our latest updates and to get in touch with us, should you wish, you'll find us at TripToMoviesPod on all social media right then if you are ready let's do this hello and welcome to a show where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect trip to the movies this week we're joined by an incredible filmmaking duo who in 2023, not only picked up the BAFTA Award for Best Short Film for their incredible movie An Irish Goodbye, but then went on to Oscar glory, picking up the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short over in Hollywood. Their third and final short film, The Golden West, is currently generating a buzz on the festival circuit and they joined me today to talk about that film as well as taking us on their perfect trip to the movie. It is, of course, the brilliant Tom Berkeley and Ross White. Tom, Ross, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. It's it's a big day for the podcast because you are our first Oscar winners on the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, gosh. What an honor.
1: That is an honor. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's still very strange to hear that being said about uh, us in the same sentence. So we're not quite used to it yet, but we're, we're very pleased to be here.
0: It's an incredible achievement uh, and absolutely deserved. We're going to talk about it in a moment. Um, But let's start with last week, because I saw you guys in person last week at the British Short Film Awards, the third annual British Short Film Awards. Um, You picked up Best Director for your phenomenal, I think, final third short film, The Golden West. Um, Let's talk about the awards. How important are they? Not just as an accolade for filmmakers like yourselves, but as a way of bringing together filmmakers.
2: God, it's so it's so huge. You know, I think like short film as a medium can sometimes feel like a bit of a forgotten thing and a bit of a solitary thing to be making short films. So, you know, going to festivals is one thing and that's fantastic, but having a dedicated kind of short film awards where the community, as it were, can come together and kind of celebrate one another and just, just champion it. And I, I don't know, I feel like, of all of the kind of award things it has such a good energy there's such a good vibe in there. room there will be sort of there's not a competitive kind of nature it's just a, a complete kind of love for the fact that we're all there celebrating shorts so um yeah it's a really great thing to have for the industry and, and consider that it's so new you know
1: three three years but it's been going the same amount of years as we've been making <laughs> films so we've been kind of like you know in, ta- in tandem you know grow- growing with the with the uh british short film awards so it's um yeah, there's a lovely sort of roundness to that, and it was it was really nice to, as Ross says, like these people that you you know you do start seeing uh, you know on a, on a more regular basis at festivals and and these kinds of things, and you know building up friends and sort of uh, contacts amongst your peers. It's so nice to kind of get together with these people. It's something that is dedicated for this medium. Uh,
0: you, as you said, uh, it's been going as long as you have uh, the Golden West. Um, it's such a beautiful film. How do you view it as your third film? Are, do you feel, do you look at it, and when you compare it to your previous work, it does genuinely feel like you have advanced as filmmakers in terms of what you're putting on screen?
1: Yeah, I think I think if you compare it to our first film, uh, which was called Roy, which was, um, you know, it was all... Essentially, shot in one one room with with one actor, and you know, uh, the the Golden West is is in the mountains in North Wales in winter with with donkeys and guns, and <laughs> you know, it's a it's a Celtic Western really, and and so I suppose they couldn't be more different. But that's that was our goal setting out. You know, when we decided to start filmmaking together we we set ourselves a task of doing three shorts in in three years and the idea was that they would scale up in terms of like their scope and and ambition and we 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 didn't go to film school so again they were also trying to act as a sort of de facto film school for us and so the golden west was supposed to be the kind of culmination of of what we'd learned so far and then what we still wanted to kind of challenge ourselves with and so you know shooting on film was a big part of that um just i suppose the kind of the ambition that the story sort of required in in terms of like the the genre space that it's that it's in the sort of um the the general sort of setting and the, the sort of plotting of the characters and everything like that is, as well as kind of got a i suppose a bit of a, a scope to it trying to push at the walls of what the short film kind of medium can be and um yeah i think i think we just we just see it as our opportunity to be learning and it's our kind of like playground and so i think it's um i think it definitely it definitely challenged us um in in a a great way i
0: i think i was going to ask this later but you're you're touching on it now and you mentioned this to me at the british short film awards you neither of you went to film school you have learned filmmaking through making short films just talk me through the mindset of that, because I'm sure there are people listening who go, I don't I, I don't like my job. I want to start becoming a filmmaker. I never went to film school. What is that like actually learning on the job? How much research did you do before? How difficult was the process of learning the craft of filmmaking by making film?
2: Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, for us. Um, so starting out, it was our first time ever behind camera. We it, we came to it from a love of film and a love of story, and like so many pe- people do, you know. And I think I remember in the, the run up to Roy, our first ever time behind the camera, we just did so much sort of cramming, for lack of a better word, like trying to read up as much as possible, watch like YouTube videos stuff, like there's so much great resource out there. But to to be quite honest, like I think as a director or you know a writer or producer, your kind of your key role is to Know your story that you're telling. Uh, find out how to get the best people around you, support you in a technical sense. Because I think for us, that was the side that terrified us at the start. You know, we, we didn't know the difference between lenses and, you know, cameras and, and lighting setups. And we felt a bit of that kind of um, imposter syndrome, I suppose. And, you know, I think you quickly have to shake that off and just say, I know what I don't know. I know what I do know. And I will sort of try and fill those gaps in knowledge with, great people around me and great collaborators and that doesn't mean you need to be working with like you know the 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 top of the top of the game like there's there's so many people wanting to do this work who you know we've had a real sort of pleasure in the shorts to work with really great pros and great artists who maybe do a lot of music video a lot of commercial work and are just desperate to get like more involved in like narrative storytelling as well and you actually find that i don't know if you can if you can sort of communicate your passion the reason you're making that film and people can back it they'll come on and they'll work for you know let's be honest not much money but, you know because they they just back it they want to be involved in telling that story so I think for us it was just rip, ripping off the kind of when we started out, we were just going to be writers we wanted to find directors to direct our shorts and um, that was the kind of goal and then we just couldn't really get anybody to direct the script because we were sort of nobodies at the time. And when we wrote Roy, the first short, it was so kind of pared back and simple, but we said, well, let's try it. Let's give it a go and see how we feel. And, you know, it's a, it's an addictive kind of uh, pain directing film. It's sort of, uh, we, we did it and it was so stressful for a weekend, but then we turned each other and said, we, we've got to keep doing this. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think that was really it. Just that kind of diving in and finding the people to surround yourself with who can support.
0: So you've mentioned, Roy, uh, we, we touched on uh, the phenomenal The Golden West. Let's talk an Irish goodbye. Um, 2022, the British Short Film Awards, you pick up best film and then other things happen after that. Just just talk me through exactly what that journey was after winning best film at the British Short Film Awards. Then what happened?
1: <laughs> um no, we were very, very, very fortunate to to you know ultimately win the um, best live action short at the Academy Awards and uh, you know uh, best British short at the BAFTAs and then we also won best short film at the uh, Irish Academy Awards as well. So we were uh, we were the most sort of <laughs> um, surprised and bowled over by that as it was happening. Um, our expectations, you know, for the film going into it as again, you know, in short film. Particularly, you do not expect to be anywhere near the uh, the Baftas or the Oscars. You know, as as I said right at the start, it was a, a learning, you know, exercise for us to you know get better at our craft and you know hopefully introduce the film to some people who hopefully might like our work. And then it kind of just uh, snowballed in a way that we we really didn't expect and took on a real life of its own. And you know, various planets aligned. It was it was an Irish goodbye was the first thing that we wrote together when we started writing and um, as Ross kind of alluded to you know in the the early early stages it was quite difficult to get the funding together for it so that's why then we kind of took a step to make Roy which was slightly more contained maybe we could do it off our own backs and I'm really glad that we that we did that and we didn't rush into trying to do an Irish goodbye um, without the resource that it necessarily needed because there is a bit of scope to that story and um, ultimately when we got to direct it and make it we we felt kind of ready to sort of meet that head on and we were we were really proud of it you know we were really just sort of felt very content about it put it out on the film festival circuit and then it was on the circuit best part of like 12 or 14 months until the um the Oscars like shortlist and the BAFTA shortlist and things came out so it was a massive part of our lives for about three years or something like that. And then it had this incre- like, incredible final chapter to its story, which, um, yeah, was just the most fun. And we felt very fortunate to have had that experience.
0: Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention this fact. It's an incredible fact. I love this fact. You are the youngest British filmmakers ever to win an Oscar. Talk me through that night because I've watched repeatedly in preparation. I've done my due diligence. The video of you guys hearing your name announced, standing up at the Academy Awards to walk to the stage, and you look as cool as cucumbers. You look very, very relaxed. It did not feel that way inside (laughs) at all.
2: I I watch it back as well, and I can't believe I can't look because I just remember having a complete screaming fit inside. It was just so surreal. But to be honest, the whole whole day was surreal and the whole kind of run up the month's up to, so it it kind of just felt like, you know, you were kind of running on air and it was just like a in the clouds but the actual day i just remember pulling up you know to the to the oscars walking through and i guess the charm of the whole thing for us was it was myself and tom with our production company and the two lead actors of our film just as like a little band of brothers like the four of us as mates basically at this crazy thing that we'd watched our whole lives and there wasn't like a big studio or a big like uh organization like this it was just us so it felt very sort of um fitting that the the film came out of that and then we were there as that but then you're on on the red carpet or the the champagne colored carpet as it was this year and it's just like you know who's who you of hollywood you're just like spotting all these people and i guess sometimes the nerves come over you a little bit and you're sort of a bit uh reserved you're taking it back and then james martin our, our fantastic star of our film has no nerves at all he's like cool as a cucumber so he was just like running up to celebrities <laughs> we just like, me and Tom would be chatting about something we'd spin around and James would be like hugging the rock. And then it was just like, you know. So, I don't know, I feel like we very quickly just said, this is, you know, let's enjoy it. Let's enjoy the day. Like, we weren't kind of thinking about whether or anything at that point, I guess, you know, it's very rare to even be in that room. So you've just got to say, let's take it all in and try and, you know, take those little mental photographs as much as possible. Um and then the other kind of added bonus was that it was actually James Martin's birthday, the day of the ostrich show our shark of the of the shore, it was his birthday, um, which I think took the pressure off a little bit again because it was sort of the ostrich became the second most important thing of the day. It was James's birthday first, and it was just the most ridiculous birthday party anybody's ever had.
0: It's um, it's 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 such an achievement. It's it's so great, and I've I've interviewed more recently uh than i can remember quite a lot of writing and directing partnerships um you look at the landscape right now you've got obviously the russo brothers uh, uh, the Filippu brothers who just did the wonderful talk to me this year how important is it for you guys to have each other when it comes to creating a film from like a blank screen on a laptop to a finished product
1: yeah, I mean, it, well, it's 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 all we know, really. I mean, like even before we went into filmmaking, you know, Ross and I, we met when we were eighteen, so that's, that's ten years ago now, and we we were collaborating from the get go. We we set up and ran a theatre company together for about four years, and then we were we were writing together a lot uh, before we kind of then became writers and, and directors as a as a collaboration, and so we've sort of always been in e- in each other's pockets, and you know going back to that crazy period of time with the oscars and 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 the all the you know all of that madness like the the thought of going through that on my own would or you know uh, without the kind of other other half as it were would feel very would feel very strange and very lonely and i think it's it's great to have a collaborator at all stages you know when we're writing it's it's it you know filmmaking is collaborative medium it's it it kind of establishes the sort of um the ethos of collaboration from the get-go and that's that's lovely and it gets it gets you out of your own head and it makes you kind of think about your ideas and justify your ideas but then also at the other end of the spectrum when you're when you are there on the champagne colored carpet and stuff like that you've got you know your your best mate of 10 years with you as well and and it kind of um it makes everything feel a little bit more normal Mm. and um it's just a lot. It's just a lot more fun to go through those those crazy experiences with somebody else as well. Um, so yeah.
0: Um, Ross, how do you feel? It seems wrong to just hear Tom's side of things. Just in case you go, I feel entirely differently.
2: I don't. I don't think I've heard Tom be so lovely and soppy in <laughs> such a long time. That was great. Um, yeah. No. I, I. I totally agree. You know. I, I think that's exactly. it. I think. Um, it is just such an intense process making a film and that you know, that for us is to make it short films so the the leap into features is gonna is gonna, you know, multiply that. But it is such a when you put your kind of all into something, it is a very intense thing to go through. So to have a kind of you know, a, a, a friend, a kind of person beside you throughout that, a kind of champion with you. You know, we always joke about as a duo, whenever we face these moments of crisis you know, when things are going wrong on set, sort of it's one of our jobs when the other one is at a low point and kind of thinking this is a total disaster. The other one has to sort of maintain a total veneer of coolness and like pretend that everything's fine. Even if inside you're also thinking this is a disaster. (laughs) So I think we kind of, we have that for each other. We, you know, you just, yeah, you have that kind of support for one another in what is a complete roller coaster of an industry and of a job where, you know, you, you go from these complete, difficult problems that you're facing on set one week to an end. You're at a festival a month later or whatever, you know, and you're celebrating a, a great sort of showing or it's, it's just so good to have your mate with you during that for sure.
0: Um, just before we head to our virtual cinema, I, I, I want to ask you your experience of watching an Irish goodbye with an audience. I'm not sure how often that has happened. I'd never experienced it before at the film awards just last week. It was screened for an audience and, and seeing the reaction hearing the laughter at the jokes hearing the silence at the moments of drama what is that like for you as filmmakers is that something you've experienced a lot with your work
2: we've been we've been fortunate yeah to especially with an Irish goodbye to sort of say it we the one of the best things of the whole experience with the awards was that we managed to do like a short sort of theatrical release of the film or a theatrical tour i guess around the UK and Ireland and i think that felt really important for us because filmmakers are always going to say, you've got to see my movie in the cinema. That's you know, But but for this film particularly, it really feels like it benefits from that communal experience in a way that I would say, amongst our shorts, it by far, you know, away the most. And I think that having that kind of communal experience, especially when it's a comedy or, a, you know, a kind of dramedy, I guess, or a black comedy, whatever you want to call it, having those moments, as you say, where we can... Just indulge in those those moments of joy and laughter with an audience and then also feel you know, the turns and the the kind of sharp spins and those dramatic moments. So um, it's been a real blessing for us. And what's been interesting is watching it go around the world a bit as well internationally with theatrical audiences in the cinema, because, you know, some of the more specific maybe Irish jokes, Northern Irish jokes that you can get in the UK and in Ireland, maybe then you go to America and there's just like different kind of laugh here and a different laugh there but it's it's amazed us so well it kind of has traveled and audiences have really sort of taken to it but yeah for sure the cinema experience with it feels like the best
1: way the line at the end of the film where um which which is, is something along the lines of um all oh, the 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 English are no crack at all and that line gets a laugh every that <laughs> sort of um I mean, people come up to tom and they're like oh i'm so sorry i laughed the
2: most at that line but i do think you wrote that line which is great self-awareness stuff
1: but it uh, you know you uh, yes I, I was maybe we should have done like a kind of laugh ometer, like the different countries display that who thinks the english are the least crack and <laughs> uh, like a wool um based on the on, on the laugh that that line gets but yeah
0: uh, uh one final thing i obviously the golden west it, it's um it's about to. Uh, well, it is on the the festival circuit now. It's a wonderful film. How are people going to be able to see it in the future? Because I, I I can't wait for people to experience your your final short before your debut feature.
1: Yeah. Well, we're we're fairly still fairly early in the sort of festival circuit for the short and and it's got um a lovely sort of run-up of of places that it's going and and if people want to kind of follow the, the journey of the film from now it, you know it's it's across all the the socials as kind of the gold the golden west film and and you know on our personal ones as well and so if it happens to be going to a festival near anybody you know it, again it's it's one of those that it would be great if people could see it on the big screen we'd we'd love ultimately for it to find a kind of a home potentially with a Maybe a, with a, with a, with a streamer, but but then also to potentially do a little um, theatrical um, release if we can do. Um, you know, there's there's there used to be this sort of tradition of shorts playing before features um, in in the in the theaters, and that that's something that we're we're sort of trying to think of ways that we might be able to, to bring back. So um, yeah, we've got we'd we'd love all of our films to have a nice afterlife <clears throat> after their festival circuit, so people can kind of keep seeing them for years to come. So we're very much um, we're very much. Uh, keeping that on the radar and trying to find a way that so it's going to be, uh, yeah, be able to see the, the world over.
0: Um, I, I, I truly hope people do get to see it on the big screen uh, because it's so cinematic. Visually, it's incredible. It's such a wonderful film and it deserves to be seen on the big screen. And that is The Golden West. Good luck with that on the festival circuit, gentlemen. Now, as we're talking about the big screen, it's time to begin our journey. We are leaving this reality to head to a dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits you are our guides we are your audience let's go on a trip to the movies so we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer there's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer the hum of anticipation it is your perfect cinema trip guys who have you picked living or dead to go with you Ross.
2: I've picked Martin Scorsese. I just felt like it was a very obvious answer, but I just thought I want that, that guy and his, his encyclopedic knowledge of film, and I want to hear what he thinks. And I just feel like he'd have a good little giggle as well beside me if it was comedy.
0: Martin Scorsese is a busy man in our virtual cinema because he is often visiting with various guests. And um, what was your entry level? To the legend that is Martin Scorsese?
2: That's a really great question. I think it was I think it was Goodfellas, you know? I think Goodfellas was the first thing I saw and it was like the first one of one of the first times of being just so like hit over the head with the the filmmakers kind of aesthetic and the filmmakers artistry. And I don't know I, we speak with this a lot. You know, growing up I think you look at the the actors as the storytellers as the kind of the center because they're the, the, the visible thing. But I think when you watch the great auteurs and the great like cinema, you know, makers you see and you feel mm-hmm. their hand and their fingerprints all over it. And I think watching Goodfellas for the first time, you know, that I remember that moment where at the end of the film, when you know, Henry Hill turns to the camera and does the direct address. I was, I was so, I, w- I was like, what, what's going on? I was just unbelievable. It took me aback. So, yeah, I want to speak to Marty about all of that, and uh,
1: yeah, a... you call him Marty now, are you
2: right? <laughs> well, when when we go to the cinema together, he tells me not to call him Mister he? So, are
0: you, are you saying that since you've become a filmmaker yourself, and understanding the elements that go into directing a scene from sound from Lighting, from all of that, you've begun to appreciate what is involved in what he does.
2: Yeah, it's it's just it's just elevating at that next level where it's like it's not just the sim- you know, there's kind of well told story is one thing, but then it's also to have your own distinct view of the world and your own kind of fingerprints to put on something and and your own style that is so and you look at the films he's done from, you know, Goodfellas to, to silence, but but you still know it's a Martin Scorsese film. There's such a distinct voice throughout that. I just saw Killers of the Flower Moon two nights ago in the cinema, and I just—it was just such a joy to like sit and let a, just a great story wash over you. And it feels like—I think I read something he said like he feels like he's directing novels as much as he's directing films. And I really get that feeling with his his films. They're almost not just one story; they're ten stories in one. You know, they're absolute epics. So yeah, that's what really impresses me with this work.
0: I love it. We've got Martin Scorsese, Tom. Who's joining you in our virtual cinema?
1: Yeah, in a very similar vein, I would be taking Quentin Tarantino, um, of, of, of the the sort of encyclopedic um, cinema brain. There, I think would be um, just a fun person. If a bit daunting, actually, a bit overwhelming to have that that presence there. But um, I think, yeah, just 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 on the basis of the of the stories and the, and the knowledge, uh, I think he'd be good fun in the cinema.
0: So Goodfellas was Ross's introduction to Martin Scotts. Marty. What am I doing? Marty. Um, so what was your introduction to uh, the legend Quentin Tarantino?
1: It's probably Inglorious Bastards, but I'm trying to think if I'd seen I my my I had a brother who was very, very into film um, you know, of kind of in a sort of two year gap when he was about seventeen and sort of I was I would have been about ten at the time and he was showing me you know lots of sort of you know for that age inappropriate things and I have a feeling that we would have watched Reservoir Dogs together um at, at around about that time but I think like of 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 an age to fully sit down and sort of appreciate it would have been Inglourious Bastards and that you know opening scene um from there where Christ, Christoph Waltz in is absolute element and I think one of the one of the surely the best openings to um a, a, a movie ever written and i think like that really captured the sort of the writer in me and the and the director in me and the one-time actor in me and all of it and i i from from there was kind of hooked and um we both are really you know we're both we're gonna have very similar i just feel like we're gonna have very similar answers to this because we have such a shared sensibility about all of this stuff but maybe we should all go as a four
0: (laughs) this is interesting so i'm gonna ask this now do you know what each other have answered for each question, or is this going to be uh, an interesting journey?
1: No, this, this is didn't.
2: a total, total surprise. Yeah. Okay. I, I wonder if there double ups? So, yeah, we'll find out. I was thinking that when I was answering it. If we. Yeah,
1: want to pick the same. Yeah.
0: Interesting. All right. All right. Well, there is a clock on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema, Tom?
1: Yeah, I I said seven thirty in the evening. Um, on the provisor that there isn't any football on, because it's also a key sort of football time, and um, that I, that would just be a distraction more than anything. I suppose it also depends on the on the length of the film. If we were going to do a big Killers of the Flower Moon uh, epic, maybe you'd have to knock it a little bit, a little bit earlier. But I think I think you want it to be dark outside before you get into the cinema as well. Like I think that's the sort of the sense of occasion of it all. It feels odd to be. Going at the uh in the, in the crack of dawn, so I've gone for a seven thirty.
0: Okay, seven thirty. Interesting that you mentioned *Kills of the Flower Moon*. There's been a lot of discussion about the idea of returning to the intermission because, as it as it is, it's uh, over three hours long. For your first feature, are, are you going to just let loose? Obviously, you've worked within the confines of the short film. Although I will say. All of your short films do follow uh, the, the the very distinct three-act structure, especially uh, the the recent two. Um, what is your your plan for your feature? I'm not sure how much you can talk about it, how much you want to talk about it, because I believe you're still at the writing stage. But is it going to push, I don't know, four hours? You should,
2: yeah, we should do like a seven-hour epic, like two intervals. Um... No, I I think it'll be closer to the, the typical one one forty to hour kind of mark. We're yeah, we're still in the writing process at the moment um, and kind of cooking away. But it's really been lovely to be back in that space, you know, from having made shorts. The thing we're writing at the minute to give you a little bit on is a sort of I guess a, a cabin fever kind of story, uh, that is a bit of like a psychological thriller meets a, a dark comedy. So we're writing in the I would kind of early draft of that at the moment, uh that we're hoping to sort of finish in the next few months.
0: Wow. That's interesting. That's interesting. Cabin Fever. Um, I think the minute you mentioned those two words, everyone goes, the razor leg scene, the razor leg scene. It's an unforgettable moment.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, fantastic. I I think there's going to be a lot of people who've seen your work who are very excited about your debut features. So uh, we're going 7.30 Tom Ross
2: not too dissimilar, yet. Yeah. I'm going for an eight pm on on the proviso. I need that extra half an hour because me and Marty have been eating some spaghetti. I don't know, the really Italian restaurant or we'll get some dinner together first. Um, yeah, I think I agree with all that Tom said. Nice evening screening, you know, uh, eight pm for me. Hey, this is great. Oh, and, all, and also, and also, getting there on time to see the trailers. I like that. I'm not, I'm not sort of like, well, you know, if it starts today, we'll get there halfway half eight because the movie because I, I like to be there and see the trailers. The trailers is part of the experience. I'm sorry. Does anybody else play the trailer game? Do you ever play the, I love the trailer game, where adverts and trailers, as soon as they come up, whoever you're with, you've got to guess what the advert's for or guess what the trailer's for, <laughs> and you keep sore. That's something I've done for 10 years, and I just love it. it, it yeah, that's a part of the set of a going experience.
0: Um, I, I've never heard of this game. I already love this game because I, okay. I the the first time because of the nature of uh, the job I often see press screenings. So the first movie I saw for a long time at the cinema was Barbie, and it, it was it was a wonderful experience. The cinema was packed. I hadn't seen a full auditorium for quite some time, but I was surprised by almost 40 minutes of adverts. And had I known that game, it would have made it far more interesting.
2: You could take that one for future then, for sure.
0: Right then. uh, This is very convenient for Quentin and Marty uh, because we're going roughly at the same time. We've got half an hour. I'm just going to say eight o'clock for both. Is that all right, Tom? That's fine. Let's do that. All right. Good stuff. So you gentlemen have booked the tickets for this trip. Where in the auditorium are we going to be sitting? Ross.
2: I mean I, I said that, you know, I think me and Marty are gonna be in the recline seats, just kicking it back and
1: getting comfy. Um well I I've said wherever Quentin wants to sit just because <laughs> I you know, he's a he's a cinema he's a cinema man, he's a cinema buff. It's it's his you know, it's his religion and uh that's his church. And I feel like it would be wrong to to tell him where to sit and I feel like I'd just be interested. I hope he's not a front row kind of man because it's, that's just, I don't think I've got the neck for it now. Like just the, the kind of craning up for that. But also my parents love sitting right at the back. I think because they just, I don't know. They're just like quite reclusive in their sort of natures. They like being a sort of far away from, people. And, I, and unless the screen's massive, sometimes that you might as well be at home. Do you know what I mean? So I think at least half, at least halfway
0: down. So, uh, Ross, you don't mind where as long as it's a recliner and Marty's happy. Tom, you're going to leave it to Quentin. I'm going to assume, and this is a huge assumption, until he comes on the show and tells me otherwise, Quentin is going to sit in the middle row in the middle seat because apparently, uh, having spoken to filmmakers, that is, I'm sure you know... The ideal place for sound and vision. It's it's where sound engineers dictate. If you want the perfect sound, you sit in those seats. This is what yeah. I'm
1: talking about. This is what he'll know, yeah. yeah. The
0: shot. Right, we're, we're leaving it to them, but I'm going to put you in the middle of the middle right now. So the final thing we need from the foyer before we start our journey. Oh, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat, Tom?
1: Um, So like growing up as a kid, I was not allowed to eat anything in the cinema. My mum was very much and she would usually be taking me was very much against um, popcorn and sweets and didn't didn't like people ruining the ambience of the films with with their sort of sounds of eating. And that that's kind of really rubbed off on me now. So I don't I don't tend to I don't tend to eat. So I, I won't actually be having anything. I'll be going hungry. <laughs> and I would like to apologise to
2: Tom's mom because I'm gonna be the complete opposite and just be getting the largest sweet popcorn I can find. Me and Marty are gonna be dipping in, chomping away. I, I can't I yeah, I think it's part of the whole uh, the whole experience. I love to you know, a big thing of
1: Coca Cola and, and some popcorn, but I've got a big sweet tooth as you know. You're the kind of person that we would have just <laughs> rolled up rolled our eyes at and, and tutted it at. I think it's all about you. <laughs>
0: Okay, so uh, Ross is taking a a large sweet popcorn and a Coca Cola. Uh, Tom, I- I'm going to ask only once, and you- and you can stick to your guns. But this this is your perfect cinema trip. You can go rogue. You can you can go wild if you want to break that rule.
1: Yeah, there's a part of me that feels like I I should just you know on rebellion get like a bit of everything and go absolutely massive and gorge. But then I just think that. I think there is there is something about the um about the the sanctity of 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 not of not having those things. Um I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to say I'm I'm not having anything to eat.
0: I love it. What? I love it to quote Gene Wilder from Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Nothing. You get nothing. Right. <laughs> Let's leave the foyer. We push open the doors to the corridor that leads to the auditorium. Now, the corridor is looking a little bare at the moment, so I want to put up some posters that depict your most important movie memories. And The first poster I'm putting up depicts your fondest movie memory. What is your fondest movie memory, Ross?
2: I really vividly remember going to see uh, Second Lord of the Rings, the two towers with my my dad and my sister, and just leaving that screening being so... Blown away and and literally in the corridors of the cinema, like running around pretending like, to play swords with my sister my cousin was there as well and and then on the car ride home just us arguing the whole time about who would be legolas who would be aragon who would be gimli i think dad got gimli in the end and um, so it just it was such a formidable kind of yeah film to see together
0: dad 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 got gimli sounds about right i mean i i love yeah. gimli <laughs> But no one wants to be Gimli. Everyone wants to be Legolas.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was the argument over me and my sister. I think she had long blonde, blonde hair, so she won. She got to be Legolas. So I, I think I was a miscast Aragon. Probably more of a Frodo, to be honest. But yeah.
0: So my big Lord of the Rings uh, question is: two battles, I think, define that series. And I'm a huge action junkie, so I, I love the action that <laughs> Peter Jackson directs. What is your vote for the greatest battle? Helm's Deep. Or the battle for Minas Tirith in Return of the King?
2: It's, I th- I think on the basis of this experience, it's got to be Helm's Deep. I just think I've never seen anything like it. And I saw it so young that it really stopped. Because I think when the first Lord of the Rings came out, I didn't see it at the cinema. We saw it on home release and we got that really bad surround sound at the time. But my dad was so impressed with it that we were like, bringing neighbours around to hear it and stuff. So then when the second one came out, we were like the first in line to see the movie. And watching that battle I mean there's that great quote from the cinematographer because it's so beautifully lit and it's really you know you get a lot now when they say about nighttime battles and stuff it's really hard to see what's actually going on these days and they say that is so beautifully visible and they've got like that blue moonlight and somebody asked him you know but where does this light actually come from like what's the justification of the movie and he says the light comes from the exact same place as the music comes from and I thought that was just a perfect like such a yeah it's a brilliant brilliant quote
0: I did not know that quote. That is such a wonderful quote.
2: That's for all TPs out there. If you ever get questioned as to where the, where the light's coming from, you can just say the same place as the music.
0: <laughs> I love it. Right, Tom, let's put up a poster for your fondest movie memory. We've got Lord of the Rings, the two towers on one side. What am I putting on the other side of the corridor?
1: Yeah, this isn't, it's not a particularly sort of highbrow thing, but I, I it's my sort of strongest memory of like the, the the power of of cinema as a as a kid i was actually going to see alex ryder's stormbreaker um which came out in 2004 so i would have been eight and i have a very sort of strong core memory of leaving the cinema um convinced fully convinced that i was a, a, a secret agent and i um i remember just like you know sort of strutting out and then looking as we were leaving like looking around in the foyer thinking about like how i would you know, do my like he in that film he does like a kind of escape thing on like a BMX bike. I thought it was the sort of coolest thing at the time. And uh, you know, it's gonna be weird to have Lord of the Rings poster up next to Alex Rider Stormbreaker. But uh, for me, it was uh, it was a, a seminal moment.
0: I, I I love the fact that on one side we have Lord of the Rings the two towers, on the other side Alex Rider Stormbreaker. But there is a thing about seeing a film as a child, isn't there? And the difference yeah. that watching a film has as an adult, do you, do you miss, it's a weird question, but do you miss that, that pure escapism? Cause film still offers you a, a way away from reality, but like watching a movie as a kid and, and just losing yourself completely in it and almost believing it as another reality. Has that changed a lot for uh, you?
1: Yeah. I was thinking about this yesterday and, um, I suppose you know when you're now when you're working on the other side and you're making you're making films and the sort of um you know you're sit you're seeing the kind of the, co- the cog's whirring and everything behind it 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 um it both sort of demystifies and, t- and takes that away but also kind of reignites it in a in a different way and I suppose like it's we're always trying to get back to that place of like awe and um yeah tri- childlike sort of wonderment when we're when we going to the cinemas and I feel like it is it's our job as filmmakers to put people of all ages into that frame of mind
0: that's a very good answer to uh, quite a difficult question thank you Tom thank you right gentlemen we carry on down the corridor the second poster I'm putting up depicts your worst movie memory I'll start with you Tom mm.
1: I I really didn't like and probably still don't like horror films um But particularly as a a kid, again, I think it was probably that having too much imagination kind of making them feel too, too real. And I I remember uh, for some reason watching Paranormal Activity with some friends. And I knew I wasn't going to like it from the start. And I watched the entire thing with my eyes closed, which is a long time to be sat with your eyes closed but <laughs> fully awake, like just just w- willing that I might fall asleep or something like that. But I fully just sat there with my eyes closed for the whole thing, slightly leaning back so that my friends couldn't see that I wasn't like watching the film. And But then you're just hearing everything happening, which is kind of creepier in a sense. But anyway, um, I've never watched it since, and I will never in the future. Just listen. Was-
0: do you think that maybe to go back to your previous answer if you were to make a horror movie it might show the whirring of the cogs and allow you to then enjoy horror and not be quite so scared by it I
1: think it would be a, a brilliant irony I suppose if 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 we did if we did make one and I, and I I I loved it and it was the thing that um you know un, unlocked it for me and then I could watch paranormal activity like with with sort of glee um but uh, yeah, i suppose in the film we're writing at the moment there's a few elements of, of horror in there, but it's it's more on the it's more on the psychological it's the paranormal stuff and the yeah, I don't know. It just really it kinda of gets me in a in a in a weird way.
0: I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed of. I think paranormal activity is absolutely petrifying. I watched it on my own in a screening room. Uh no one else was in there, just me in a screening room in the dark with that movie. Uh, I, I I was Horrifying, horrifying 2007's Paranormal Activities, the first poster we're putting up. Over to you, Ross. What's your worst movie memory?
2: I, this is not the fault of the movie itself, but I went on my first ever date with a girl from my class to see Nanny McPhee <laughs> of all movies. And I was really, I was really young. Uh, I must have been like nine or ten. And we went on this little date, and uh, the romance was short lived. So I'm going to put up the poster for Nanny McPhee. <laughs> eh,
0: why was it short lived? You're saying it's not the movie?
2: Because I'm going to see Nanny McFee. That's why I, would... I, I think it's because I took her to see Nanny McFee. Yeah, it wasn't the most romantic of choices. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's my poster that's going on.
0: Oh, I, uh, the cinema date. Uh, do, do we agree with it? This idea of going on a date to the cinema? I went to see a movie and there were a couple on their first date and they talked all the way through. It's
2: not our first date it's not a first date place it's like you know if you've been with somebody for a long time it's a nice thing to do but I agree because you, you can't be you can't be whispering and chatting yeah,
1: for sure it's maybe a nice one for like people who are friends who you know have maybe uh, have always had the potential to move into you know and there's a bit of like you know a bit of hand bit of hand holding bit of you know that kind of thing but if you're there on a full first date and you want to get to know somebody yeah take take that out of the cinema please
0: that was really good advice, Tom. If you're friends who think there may be a spark, but you're not sure, the cinema is the place to perhaps realize there's more to this friendship.
1: And that's what's gonna happen with me and me and Clinton. <laughs> In his wandering hands. <laughs>
0: All right. Our next poster we're putting up depicts the last performance that brought you to tears. Ross.
2: I, I'm such a sucker for this movie, so the one of the things that really just get me every time. So I, I probably the last one I watched, but um I'm gonna go for one that really got me quite heavily, which was Marriage Story when I saw. It. I just remember the music, Ronnie Newman's score and, and that film just was so so beautiful. So I'll say marriage story for me. Noah bound back.
0: That uh that scene um between uh Adam Driver and it's Johansson. Scarlett Johansson Scott Johansson, sorry, yeah. That scene where they have the blazing row feels to me there. like the most real argument I've ever seen up to film.
2: It so so well. Have you ever seen those um strip to screen videos where it shows you it on the page and the actual film? It's just remarkable how how he writes that way and and all of his other films. You know, it is so. I I also love um the Myerbit stories. It's one of my favorite films uh, that he made. It's just brilliant, and he just really captures that. Family dynamic like, and arguments and the messiness, and an argument that breaks into a joke a minute later. Yeah, he's, he's a master. in
1: the Whale as well is brilliant for that as well. I like, you know, it's the, yeah, he's a master at, at capturing that.
0: For you as filmmakers, yeah. when you've obviously written your script, what's it like watching an actor bring those words to life on camera?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's amazing, really. I mean, you know, way, way back when, you know, Ross and I we met at drama school you know trained to be actors and so we we've 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 got a kind of deep you know affinity and and love love for actors and what they're able able to do and I think we both have memories of when we've 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 done that well as actors and also when we we were really sort of struggled and so um any anybody who kind of takes the words and makes them their own it's like you know I suppose that's that's the job but it's always like a lovely moment to see it's the it's I think it's the first moment where you kind of see it living and breathing in front of you and you're and you kind of know whether or not it's gonna it's gonna be okay and and we're very lucky it's been it's been we've had amazing actors on everything we've done so yeah
0: right tom what poster are you putting up for the last performance that brought you to tears
1: well we were very lucky to see this in um uh Tell- Telluride film festival which we were at in in september which is where golden west had its um international premiere and it's um Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers and I th- actually thought Ross I thought you might choose this one as well so I think it's good that we managed to pick different ones because I- I'm sure we both had like a similar reaction to it but um he is uh he, he he is just it was perfect casting have you ever been able to see it yet Alex
0: I haven't seen The Holdovers so uh, give us a. it's Alexander Payne's latest movie isn't it give us, give us a, a, yeah. a very brief overview um
1: so he plays uh, Paul Giamatti plays a kind of embittered um uh kind of professor at a prep school in new england and it's the christmas holidays and he is tasked with um looking after the sort of four or five kids that that can't get home for christmas which ultimately ends up just being one kid that can't get home christmas and it's a kind of father son uh, you know they very much don't see eye to eye to begin with and they have to spend the holidays together and Paul Giamatti plays you know he's he's kind of he, he's a brilliant teacher and he's very much like by the book and and um is a very kind of impressive professor but he doesn't take care of himself and he has an incredibly like low self-confidence and you know you know doesn't have a kind of romantic partner in his life and is, is a sad sort of reclusive man and he plays that part um it's kind of very similar to sort of sideways his and, say, sideways. Yeah. and um, he just plays it so so wonderfully and where it ends up you know the kind of journey that these two go on together I think it's both the kind of paternal um, arc of that film but also his personal character's arc of finding his I suppose his his confidence I think it's just something very very s- sad about by like seeing, uh, you know, him in in the in the way that he is at the start of that film, but he yeah he he kind of takes you through that so so brilliantly, and um, I think I think I imagine most people will have a similar response when they when they get to see it.
0: Wonderful, I, I can't wait. I mean, <clears throat> what a CV of films that man has. Election about Schmidt. Um, it sounds it sounds wonderful. Looking forward to it. Right, the final poster we're putting up depicts. Your unpopular movie opinion, Ross? I
2: I don't even know if this is unpopular enough, but I'm going to say that my unpopular movie opinion is that Finding Nemo was one of the greatest screenplays ever written. Like, we're talking top five of all time. Whoa! So that was my popular sort of positive opinion, because I just think... The cop-out answer that, (laughs) (laughs) Ross. It is... I just couldn't think of one that was me, but I just think that that... That film, um, the script for that is the one of the best scripts of all time. So that's my unpopular.
0: Okay, <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, Tom already called it. I, I've started giving unpopular movie opinions a rating between one and five. One that's, being oh no. that's not very good. Five being that's absolutely brilliant. That's a that's a one. This is a one. That's a that that is, this is a <laughs> it's a cop answer. But I'm letting you have it. Tell me, tell me why it's one of the greatest screenplays ever written.
2: It is. When you, I, I saw it as a kid like 10 times in the cinema because there was so many birthday parties and they all went to see Fighting Nemo and I loved it and then I returned to you know uh, recently just to read the screenplay and I just think it is the perfect uh, metaphor so clearly of, of parenthood and I'm not a parent myself yet but I imagine when I am I'll return to it again and say even deeper about it but I just think it is, every moment is just glorious, it's there's not a waste of moment and that, that film is so economical and the it, like most of the early Pixar stuff, it is just story science to hundred percent. It's just so beautifully done and accomplished. So yeah, that's my. And it is a one. It is a one. I hold my hands up. That is a terrible point five and you
1: Are you? You hope you are going to say something extra scathing, notes on to uh, sort of neck up for us. Uh, well, I do think I'll, I'll rank massively highly, but it's um, I'm answering at least in the spirit of the question that's being being <laughs> asked, which is that. um a film that Ross really likes is is Step Brothers, and I I have to say I I've never found it funny. That's my that's my unpopular movie
0: opinion. So, one. This is Adam McKay's 2008 Will Ferrell, uh, John C. Riley comedy Step Brothers. A lot of people's favourite film. This is good, Tom. This is this is. This amazing- i
1: love everybody involved in that project i think
2: look at these ingredients
1: about. are all great i just i think what it is is when you miss I'm, i didn't see it when it came out and i and i kind <laughs> of you know missed the sort of like i think you need to get on board that film in, in the right way and then i was kind of going back watching it with the sort of cynicism of like the early 20s adult kind of you know i, I the childish, whatever it just, ne- it just never. But I like similar films, so yeah, it's. Uh, but that's mine, and I'll I'll stand by it.
0: Okay, uh, Ross, I didn't realize that there was a, such a a a, a, a a a rift between you in terms of a film. How, yeah. How do you feel about Tom not liking Step Brothers in the way you do?
2: This might change everything, Ross. What's the funniest bit in Step Brothers? The funny, admit, Where would I even begin? Where would I even begin? I mean, the the sleepwalking sequence is just comedy gold. It's comedy goal. I I know. You know. It, you're right. You had to be there when you were 13 years old to watch that film and just be like, "This is the funniest thing ever made."
1: Yeah, I think I think I just mi- I missed that. I missed yeah. that when I was 13. Yeah.
0: I'm probably going to leave it there because I don't want to see this escalate into never getting to watch <laughs> your debut feature. <laughs> right. We're putting up posters for Step Brothers because it is not funny. Tom and Ross, we're putting up a poster for Finding Nemo because it's great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry.
1: So unpopular, Ross.
0: (laughs) Scary. Uh, We've reached the final set of doors, gentlemen. Now, there is a few of people hoping to join you in the auditorium uh, alongside Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino, Do you want to let them in? Do you want a busy screening or do you want it just the four of you?
1: Oh, bring them all as busy as as possible. It's a communal experience. Mm -hmm.
0: Agreed. 100%. Great stuff. The crowd go wild. We push open the doors. They pour into the auditorium. Now, there are a few things we're going to play on the big screen before we get to the movies. You have picked a screen for us tonight. And the first thing we're going to play on the big screen are the trailers for the movies you are most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Ross, what are you most looking forward to seeing at the cinema?
2: Uh I'm going to go for Napoleon. I think that looks like a lot of fun. Looks like a great one to see. In Have you seen it yet, Alex?
0: I have not. I, I'm trying to stay see- away from reviews, but I, I can't help myself because I'm so eager to see it. Ridley Scott, historical epic. It's like, you know, you've got Gladiator. You've got not the theatrical cut, but the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven, which is... Phenomenal Excited Why are you excited?
2: I just Yeah I feel like There's just those Movies that have Got to be seen In the cinema And I actually Think that one You know One of the things With Covid and stuff Was like people Like my dad Doesn't go to the cinema A lot anymore He used to do quite a lot And now he sort of stopped So that's a great film Where I'm going to Bring him to see it Because I know he would love it And I feel like it'll Might reignite a kind of A love of cinema for him So that'll be a good one To see with him
0: Wonderful So that's one For Ridley Scott's Napoleon uh, I think we have one of our jinx moments here, Tom. Um, we
1: have a close jinx moment. I've actually gone for Gladiator two,
0: another so, Ridley Scott historical um, epic.
1: Another Ridley Scott historical epic. I don't know how old we, me and Ross, would have been when the first Gladiator came out, but um, I think that it's gonna it's gonna hit the same the same levels of a sort of cinematic experience so it'll be nice to be of an age to fully appreciate that on the big screen
0: um so you loved the first gladiator i'm assuming oh yeah yeah and yeah. Um, yeah. i love the little bit of press that came out about gladiator 2 where apparently paul mescal so for those who don't know it follows the story of paul mescal who was uh, the emperor's nephew in the first film a child in the first film and now an adult um in the first movie Ridley Scott wanted Russell Crowe to fight a rhino. It never saw the light of day. I
1: see. Is that coming into this gladiator two?
0: Almost. Apparently, Paul Meskell fights some killer baboons. I love that. Ridley
2: Scott just knows what he wants, and he's just not taking no for an answer.
1: Are killer baboons different to... Are they more friendly? Like, <laughs> baboons, are they... I'll
0: are... be honest. I added killer... <laughs> But they're they're just baboons, okay then. Yeah, I agree. Baboons. Um, how excited are, are you guys to, in your filmmaking careers, reach eighty years old, like Ridley Scott is, I think, or, or somewhere like that. I, I'm not sure exactly, but he's around that age. Fifty
1: five.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to reach Ridley Scott's age, and just go, fuck it, I want killer baboons. I want. I want. I want. Like to just have that uh, uh, amount of power and still be delivering amazing films really? not to not to have gone off the rails but to be able to say i know what i want and i want to make that how exciting would that be for you guys that's at the start of your careers
2: it takes a special kind of like master to make killer baboons work and i just know it's gonna work so yeah that excites me if we can ever get good enough to make killer baboons work then uh, we've done we've done something right
0: uh I feel you've taken the Killer baboon thing and run with it. I I, <laughs> I think
2: they should retitle the film Gladiator 2, The Return of the Killer Baboon.
0: Uh, good. That's on me. That's on me, gentlemen. <laughs> right then. The next moment. We're going to play on the big screen as we warm up for the main feature is the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air, Tom.
1: Okay, so. I loved the film The Pursuit of Happiness as a as a as a kid um again it's not the most highbrow choice none of mine are um but it, the moment at the end of that film where Will Smith's character Chris Gardner um gets the job at the brokerage and there's it's it's a great, it's a do you know do you know the film where do, do, I you know I, the scene I'm talking about
0: I do and it's it's beautiful. It is a fist pump moment. It also makes me cry without <laughs> fail every time I see it.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. It's amazing. It's an amazing acting performance from him. And like, it's, um, yeah, it, it, I just, and then there's a lovely shot. It's in slow motion of him walking down the street and it's packed with the kind of commuters. And he's just there sort of celebrating to himself amongst everybody else. who's just going about their, their daily life. I, yeah, I, I used to, I loved that. From, I still do.
0: Beautiful moment. Fist pump moment. Agreed. We're playing that. What are we playing after that, Ross? Fist pump moment. I, my
2: fist pump moment would be the uh, Mel Gibson's William Wallace speech in, in Braveheart. I just want to watch that really young again. And, you know, it's just the most rising movie speech of all time. Sure. It's just so, you know, people give him a hard time for his accent. I don't, don't even care. Don't even care. I think it's just the most remarkable, uh, yeah, sort of... Uh, Political speech moment in a movie that I can think of, and uh, it made me want to go into battle with Mel Gibson <laughs> at the age of twelve. There we go. It's
0: it's a wonderful moment. There are two there are two pre-battle rousing motivational speeches that I think really, I are, are just wonderful moments. That's one. And as a Lord of the Rings fan, I'm 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 hey. sure you'll agree. Do you know you know what I'm going to say don't you
2: Yeah are you going to go for the return of the king into into um, Aragorn's to uh I
0: was I was going to say Bernard Hill when he's uh riding, uh, riding up and down Théoden King Théoden when he's riding up and down just before the battle of Minas Tirith
2: That's sorry yeah I was thinking of the first Frodo moment but that is that is probably better what you've gone for there yeah that they're, yeah, they're they're chuckle blocks all of them it's a it's it's a great sort of it's a great opportunity for the pre-battle speech
0: it's a great moment. We're playing it. Cinema screen goes dark. We're awaiting the next moment, which is what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. Ross.
2: I have gone for quite a recent one. I've gone for the basement scene the in Parasite, the sort of discovery scene in Parasite halfway through. That really. That really. Tom you're smiling. Is that what I've you got? I've gone for the same. <laughs> hey, yeah. very- it was found up and sooner or later
1: there we go
0: so did you watch it together or you watched it separately
1: i must have i think we must have watched it separately but um mm.
0: yeah i
1: i put that down i actually should have gone back and rewatched it that specifically that scene to to kind of dissect i i just feel like from memory there's there's like a collusion of of so the music that happens and the particular cuts and everything that happens and how how it's not just the fact that he's down that like the, exactly how he has revealed to us is the sort of most unsettling sure. yeah oh gosh it was, it was such a such a great moment great movie.
0: it is a great movie uh, do you do you watch the oscars obviously you've been to the oscars but do you remember that moment where parasite won best picture i was covering the oscars at the time and it was it was I. I had a panel that just were like fish pumping uh, to go back to our last question, fish pumping the air because of what a great moment it was when Parasite won Best Picture.
2: Yeah, so so deserved. And I remember his brilliant speech where he spoke about you know a uh, foreign language film, and he said, you know, if if we can all get over this one inch thing of subtitles, you, you'll open the world for yourselves to the best cinema you know that you've not seen yet. So, yeah, what a what a guy, what a guy. Mm.
0: Uh, Great stuff. I love the fact you both picked, I'm just going to call it the basement scene, uh, because we've we've danced around it, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen Parasite. So the basement scene in Parasite is cinema's most shocking moment. We're getting closer. Only a couple of things left before we play the movies you've picked. So next up, the line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you, Tom.
1: Can I give you my runner up really quickly which is just a very specific one I, like the actual film itself I don't have like strong memories of but like back when me and Ross were acting I remember like really loving this like performance of this line which was Kate Blanchett in as a, a Queen Elizabeth in in Elizabeth and there, there's a scene where a sort of Spanish um, kind of aide comes in and, and insults her and she has a line where she turns around and I think it, it's something like she's like, I can con- control the wind. So, and she's like, there is a fire in me that will strip Spain bare if ever you dare to try me. And it's just the, like such an amazing delivery of the line. I think we should just go and watch it, it. I think if you typed in like, I can command the wind or something like that, just the weight and the sort of gravitas of it. But my actual choice was again from the pursuit of happiness. And it's when will smith turns to his son and he's like um he says don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something you got a dream you got to protect it people can't do something themselves they want to tell you that you can't do it if you want something go get it period and i um i just i i used to like watch that scene like and kind of knew that like a line like a little mantra and um, yeah, it was a it was a very sort of like formative film for me, like growing up. And I and I um, yeah, that line sort of stayed with me ever since.
0: And when you say it was like a, a mantra, I mean like genuinely a mantra. Like you repeated it to yourself when you were having moments of self doubt.
1: Absolutely, and like I, it's got such this strange affinity with Will Smith. And this is true. When I was auditioning for drama schools, I used to listened to on my journey to the auditions a youtube clip which was 45 minutes of motivational quotes by will smith and so he was like geeing me up for my auditions and that line was always in there and there were there were loads of other ones as well there was another one he had where he's he's in an interview and he's like he who says he can and he who says he can't are both usually right I used to love all these little tidbits that I would just take away from 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 him in these motivational speeches, and and that one, yeah, particularly. Um, I just, I think me and Ross share a bit of a kind of, work a sort of work ethic and um, the kind of entre- entrepreneurial spirit. I suppose is the thing that like brought us together as friends, and I think we've all, we've always sort of held a bit of like the belief that you know any anything should be possible if you're willing to sort of work hard enough for it and work harder than the person next to you kind of thing so yeah i think that's probably got something to do with it that that film and that line
0: that's fantastic and yes um it's um it's wonderful that you found each other because i think a lot of people do need another person when it comes to that um that motivation which i i think you give another person when it comes to really really understanding the the amount of Work and effort that goes into forging a career, especially in the creative industries, where everyone is trying to do the same thing. Having someone alongside you in the moments where you have lost faith in it, when you have lost that motivation to go, no, we're good here, we're good. Remember why we're doing this. That must be you touched on it earlier, but that must be so important, Ross.
2: Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, that's um. I think i think it's setting is so crucial as you say we're very fortunate we are very fortunate to find each other at a young age as well because i know people you know trying to find somebody who shares your sensibility but also we' developed a sensibility as well you know together as we, as we sort of grew up so um it's a crucial thing and and i guess for any as filmmakers even if you've not found your person yet it's not always just one one person it's about finding your your people you know when you kind of you see great filmmakers who sort of grew with Cruise and grew with a DP and grew with, you know, yeah, Robert, the filmmaker Robert Eggers, his DP, has worked on everything he's ever done from his short films right through to his feature films, so that's a great, you know, a great sort of story as well.
0: So we have a wonderful quote from Will Smith. We're playing it through the Dolby Atmos speakers from The Pursuit of Happiness. What's the next quote we're playing, Ross? What's your quote to equal that beautiful story that Tom told about Will Smith in The Pursuit of Happiness?
2: Well, I'm going to return to my not-so-unpopular movie, Finding Nemo, for the quote that I think sums up the whole film. And I love I love when lines can sort of distill a movie. And it is the line where, about halfway through the movie, Marla says to Dory, I promised them I'd never let anything happen to him. And she says, well, that's a funny thing to promise, because if you never let anything happen to him, nothing would ever happen to him. And it just... So perfectly punctures that protagonist's belief flawed belief and shows us you know what the movie is going to continue to be about and I just yeah when I reread that recently and really heard that line again I just thought that's that's perfect. That is the, the movie in a line.
0: That's such a wonderful quote. I love that. Um, you said when you reread that line do you read screenplays when you were starting your writing uh, career? As a filmmaker,
2: yeah, I try I try to. I do. We both try to as much as possible. You know, it is. It, they're they're sort of I mean, the great ones are easy enough to read, but you know, screenplays are sort of not really for the reading. They're, they're blueprints, but it is super helpful. It is super helpful when we do get round to reading and and seeing how other you know masters do things on the page and and how that then translates. And what's a great exercise sometimes is to have a script open with you and have the movie plan and sort of just literally kind of compare the two and that's been very useful for for me at
0: least Right Guys, the final thing we're going to do before we declare to Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino and this packed auditorium, the movies you've picked is play the best use of music in a movie, Tom
1: So I feel like of all all the answers, this is the one that I feel like I I stand behind with the most, most conviction and I think it is in Andrew Arnold's fish tank um, the final scene where the the mum and the and the two daunt, uh, daughters dance to "Life's a Bitch and Then You Die" by Nas, and um, it it seems like a fairly sort of not bizarre choice because it's it's actually a very like sort of specific and and um, kind of well observed choice of music for this mum is playing it on the CD and the daughter has gifted it to her, and then there is just this shot of the three of them sort of doing this improvised dance routine. And obviously, you know, Andrew Arnold, like, works in that kind of free sort of improvised space very, very well. And it's just the kind of the culmination of exactly, like, how how beautiful that style of, of filmmaking can be. And I just think that, like, I really, really loved the film, what like, watching it. And then that moment happened, and it kind of just took it to a completely different um sort of stratosphere for me and i think it's all down to that that song choice um perfectly fe- feel it, feeling like you know should it should it work with this with what we're actually seeing here but taking things to a completely different level so yeah that that'll be that would be my choice
0: and i i think you're right it feels so naturalistic such an authentic moment
1: yeah <clears throat> yeah that's it yeah exactly it it, it feels it feels Perfect and it feels right, but it, uh, you, you, there, could, there were uh, ninety nine other songs she could have chosen that were authentic and right, and they were all wrong. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That was the wrong one.
0: All right. We're watching that moment from Fish Tank. Then we're playing What Ross, the best use of music in a movie.
2: Well, I feel like we've our guests Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese are two of the best at needle drops in movies. So I, I sort of went between those two and some of the great music that they both picked, and I was thinking of. Reservoir Dogs and stuck in the middle of you and that grit, but I actually settled on Goodfellas and Cream, oh, Cream, Sunshine <laughs> of Your loves and the moment where De Niro, sat there, cut as the cucumber, smoking a cigarette, looking at, is it Morris? He's looking at, and he's he's just realizes he's got to kill him, and he does absolutely not like he just st-
1: stands there and cut as the cucumber looks at
2: him, and it just is the most.
1: He I heard that when they were either writing the, the, the screenplay or doing very early, early, early work and Scorsese was with his uh, collaborator, whoever it was and the, when they kind of got to that moment he was like, write down Creep and the guy was like, what? Creep? Like, write down Creep <laughs> like, He knew, he knew like exactly Perfect. what he was going to shoot that moment and what it was going to be Perfect. Perfect cinema
0: Perfect cinema <clears throat> Excuse me Right then On... That note of perfect cinema. It's now time to announce to this packed auditorium to two of the greatest living filmmakers on the planet, Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese, the movies you have picked for us to screen tonight. What are we watching, Tom?
1: I started to feel like... Um, daunted by choosing Quentin Tarantino as my guest because I was like what do I pick that it, firstly he hasn't seen and that he would approve of as a choice and then I just tied myself in knots over that and I thought "Like, I'm not going to be able to think of anything that's going to impress him or is that he hasn't seen so I've chosen Hook <laughs> um, and I've chosen Hook because I, probably of, 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 all, of all the films that I, I was watching when I was growing up like the one, the one that, that that captured my imagination the most and made me fall in love with with the power of storytelling, and I could probably go toe to toe, toe, toe with him talking about it. I think it's a just a one, a, just a wonderful, um, masterful sort of uh, reimagining of that of that story. And I've never seen it on the big screen, of course. I've only ever seen it on the DVD at home, so I'd love to see it on a cinema screen.
0: So we have uh, we have two of the greatest living filmmakers, in Tarantino and Scorsese, watching the other greatest living filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, on the big screen. Uh, it's a film that Spielberg. I don't think he loves himself. I certainly don't understand why people have love for Hook, but I I, I would love to know why why it meant so much to you.
1: It's I think it's the stepbrothers thing as well about like when exactly when you saw it and the, the kind of the age that you that you kind of discovered it it was one of the one of the sort of few like vcrd like the we that we had um and i just i just binged it and binged it and binged it and and it and i think i just saw it at that formative time when my kind of the, the kind of scope of my imagination was as the widest it's ever been and um i just i just loved i just loved the story and i and i'm so i'm so surprised that that he wouldn't um i i suppose when you've got a canon of work as impressive as a canon of work it would make it would make sense it would might not rank in your top in your top five um but for me um it just has a very very special sort of um re- residence to the to the child in in me uh that's sort of still there and um yeah it's uh it's that
0: that is a lovely answer and i will say I, while I'm not a fan, I could watch Bob Hoskins as Shmi every day of the week.
2: There you yeah. go. There we go.
0: Right. So next to Hook, the double bill for Tarantino and Scorsese, they're chomping at the bit. <laughs> they want to know what they're finishing their night off with. Ross,
2: I've also gone quite sentimental because when I was a kid, we had three VHS tips that I just played on a loop every night while I had my dinner. And they were Shrek, they were Mrs. Doubtfire, and they were Calamity Jane, the musical. So which one are you Um, picking? I'm actually picking Calamity Jane. Because I know every word of that movie. I could, Doris Day in that movie is perfection. It's proper old cinema, and and I'd never seen it on the big screen as well. So I'd love to see it on the big screen.
0: So calamity Jane, this is such a weird one for me. Like I'd never, I never, it's the first musical I ever saw, and you'll know more than me because I have one sketchy memory of it. But whip yeah. crack away, whip crack away, whip crack away.
2: Yeah, the Deadwood stage, that's it. Yeah, she's coming over that as brilliant, like Ernie, sort of bad moving backgrounds. It's just brilliant movie making and. You've got that great Francis Fryer sequence in the middle where a guy shows up and he's meant to be a female performer and then he puts on the dress and does the whole camera show. It's just such a great movie. It's like proper, one of those uh, golden age movies that I just watched so much. And I used to watch it with my grandmother as so I So that would be a fun little one to see in the cinema as a, a memory, a sentimental choice.
0: I love the fact you've both gone sentimental on this. Hook followed by Calamity Jane is our double bill to end the night. And that's it. The guests are milling out. Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino are thanking you for taking them on a phenomenal trip to the movies. But before you go, it's time for this week's big question, where I ask you as filmmakers to tell us and our listeners an exclusive, never-before-heard piece of information about your filmmaking careers, past, present, or future. I'm going to
2: go for one, which is when we were making The Golden West, our most recent short film That's the site, it's had a lovely start to its festival life, but it wasn't always as easy. We, When we shot that film, it was in winter, the middle of winter in Snowdonia, in North Wales, and the conditions were... Brutal. I mean, really awful. And we, we sort of, I think we finished the second day of shooting and everybody had been trying so hard, but we just weren't sure capturing everything we were looking for. And Tom and I sat in our tiny little, I think it was like a travel leisure hotel room, and we just shared a room and we just said, I don't know if we've bitten off more than we can chew here. And it was such a sad moment. It was like the low point of making that film. And then we had three more days on the shoot and we picked ourselves back up and went for it and managed to get. Just what we needed. So I, I thought I'd mention that because sometimes in all of the sun and the great stuff happening, it can seem like everything's just easy breezy. But it
1: most certainly wasn't. That was a brutal, brutal shoot. Um, and then mine would be that in a similar vein. You know, when we were we wrote that script in sort of uh, January time uh, in sort of twenty twenty two and it took us about eight months nine months to get the the sort of funding together to make it and we kind of were thinking recently and we're going back through um all of the efforts that we had done to kind of you know get 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 everything together and i think we wrote somewhere between 100 and 150 emails you know out to uh, folks kind of all across the world you know whether they were kind of interested in the 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 famine story the emigration story of the irish or whether they Uh, were sort of like interested in supporting young filmmakers we we it might even be more emails than that probably collectively between us but it felt like for the longest time our our day-to-day was just cold emailing people to try and like you know give us the 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 permission really to to make the film and um it's uh i i I don't know is there maybe a a kind of an an insight into you know a lot a, a lot it's a miracle that a lot of short films kind of Ever, ever happen because you know that's not a, an experience that's going to be um you know just for, just for us I'm sure every short filmmaker can kind of um empathize with 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 that with that struggle and and again also then to to say how thankful we are for the people that that did come and back us off the the bag of the script and the, the kind of materials that we put together um because um you know there was a sort of an ambition to the to the project and you need people to kind of get behind your your kind of emerging filmmakers so um yeah does that i i I, if we think of anything else i'll 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 jump in but that's what we've got for now
0: no those are both um amazing answers and you're right tom that offers a huge insight into just the effort that it goes that goes into making a short film because this is the golden west you're talking about where you said these yeah yeah So you're, you're at this point Oscar winning filmmakers, uh, and yet you are still having to send out 150 plus emails to get investment for your next short film. It was, yeah.
1: I mean, because of when it was, we, we were at, it was actually pre, it was pre Oscars, but it was still, you know, an Irish goodbye was good. It was going really well, picked, picked up some wins and that was definitely helpful in, in kind of attracting, um, some attention, but. You know, if you're if you're you know if you're not lucky enough to go down the sort of the, the, the public funding route and you're you're having to sort of do it independently, it, it really can it really can be um, a, a a labor of love, but the emphasis is on the love part.
0: And you are a testament, both of you, to what that love can produce. Um, that's it, guys. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back. To reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect night at the movies. You are going with Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese at 8 p.m. in the evening. You're sitting wherever Quentin wants to sit on recliners, because Ross has picked them for him and Marty. We're going to say the middle of the middle. We're going to wait for Tarantino to confirm if that is his ideal seating choice. We are eating absolutely nothing. For Tom and a large popcorn and a huge Coke for Ross that Tom is going to stare at disapprovingly for the duration of the night. The first poster we're putting up depicts your fondest movie memories, Stormbreaker for Tom and Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers for Ross. The next poster that depicts your worst movie memories, Paranormal Activity for Tom and going on a first date to Nanny McPhee for Ross. The third poster is the last performance that brought you to tears. Paul Giamatti and the holdovers for Tom and for Ross. It was Marriage Story. You're a popular movie opinion posters. So uh, a genuine unpopular a uh, movie opinion from Tom. Stepbrothers, not funny. Ross, Finding Nemo is a good <laughs> film. No. <laughs> <laughs> the trailers were playing for the movies you're most looking forward to. A couple of Ridley Scott joints, Gladiator 2 for Tom, and Napoleon for Ross. Next up, the movie moment that makes you pump your fist in the air. For Tom, it's the pursuit of happiness ending for Ross. Bravehearts, Mel Gibson, pre-battle motivational speech. The movie moment that you consider most shocking parasites basement scene for both of you the line or piece of dialogue that most affected you for tom it's the don't let anybody somebody tell you you can't do something from a pursuit and the pursuit of happiness for ross it's when marlin tells story i promised i'd never let anything happen to him that moment the best use of music in a movie it's the NARS Life's a Bitch dance at the end of Fish Tank for Tom. De Niro realising he has to kill Morris in Goodfellas to cream for Ross. And then we are watching an incredible double bill of Hook and Calamity Jane. Gentlemen, thank you for that trip to the movies. Have you had a good time?
1: It's been a blast. Great time. And we've got a, a very, very highbrow double bill of films there for those two filmmakers to enjoy with us
0: I, I love it thank you so much that was a wonderful journey and um, I'll say goodbye now thanks for being on the show thanks cheers and as Tom and Ross's cab carries them out of this dimension away from our virtual cinema Back to reality. We must all leave their movie paradise as well. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? All you need to do is leave us a comment on one of our social pages, be it Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. Each week, we'll pick someone's comment, read it out, and that person will get a pair of tickets to their nearest Odeon to enjoy a film the way a film should be watched in the beautiful embrace. Of the darkness of a cinema, so give us a follow and leave us a comment. We are at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod, or just search a trip to the movies. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before. I say my final farewell for this first episode of 24. Don't forget, you can find the full video for today's Tom and Ross interview and indeed for every guest on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there and as I said, please help us grow the pod by hitting subscribe. And that really is it. I will be back next week when another guest fills our virtual cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.